So what we're doing, uh, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. Uh, it by itself is longer than 17 of the New Testament books that we have. Um, so it is, it's a long one. Like, so th- there's a lot of books of the Bible. In fact, there's a lot of Old Testament books that are shorter than Psalm 119. It's ridiculously long. And so that's why we're taking most of the summer uh, just taking it a bit at a time, a chunk at a time. And what we're doing is uh, essentially Psalm 119 is broken into 22 uh, stanzas or sections that each have about eight verses. So it's a poem and it's written in, a, in the structure of an acrostic. Uh, the Hebrew uh, alphabet has 22 letters. So each letter of the Hebrew alphabet is given eight verses and they just kind of work through it that way. And so uh, that, that just gets to be really long. Um, so what we're going to do is basically look at two sections per week. That should get us through the summer. Um, that'll be about 11 Sundays. We've already started it. Um, so we'll have 10 more counting today. We'll have 10 more weeks in Psalm 119 and we'll see where that lands at the end of it. But but yeah, today we're going to pick it up back in uh, verse 17, work our way down to verse 32. So we're taking two more like eight verse chunks out of out of this great, great chapter. Psalm 119 was it's not attributed to anybody in particular, although a lot of psalms are. Uh, a lot of times the psalms will start with of David, because David wrote that psalm, or, or uh, sons of Korah. There's, there's a variety of people who wrote the psalms. Um, but most people do think that David wrote Psalm 119. It has his, his style all over it. It has his fingerprints all over it. And it covers a lot of things that David had written in a lot of other psalms. So likely what happened is that Psalm 119 is probably a, a kind of a, uh, a lifelong project for King David to work through the things of God's word and, and to just really take his time to pour out his heart about these things. Um, all, of course, we know it's not King David's words ultimately that matter. It is God's words that matter. God spoke these words to David. He, he inspired them through the Holy Spirit. So these are God's words, and God wants us to know what he uh, has to say through his word to us. So, uh, so that's, that's the main thing. Now, as we started Psalm 119, the psalm starts basically by telling us how we can enter in to what David says here is the blessed life. Now that word blessed or blessed, uh, when, when you actually, you know, they translate it that way into English, but um, th- that word doesn't really hit what it means. The, the word that's translated blessed really means the good life, the full, contented, satisfied, happy life that we all want and long for in our hearts. And that's, that's where it starts. It starts with how we get into that life. And the way that we get in, in verse 1, it says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless. So we said last time I was here that that, that puts us in a bad spot, right? Because we're not blameless. And so if the only way into the blessed life, the blessed life of satisfaction and joy, it can't be by us, right? Because we don't walk perfectly with God. We don't, we're not blameless, we're sinners. And so we talked about how this has to be about Jesus, 
that through Jesus, through the, through the righteousness of Christ given to us by, by his grace, we can actually enter into this life. But it's not through us. It's not by us. It's not accomplished on our, in our lives. It's accomplished through Christ's life in us. And so that's where, that's where the psalm begins, talking about how we can enter into this blessed life. And as we get into verse 17 now, um, there's a little bit of a transition where it's not going to be talking just about something, but actually changing directions to talk to the Lord himself, to speak to God, to pray that God would do some things in their lives. And so that's what we're going to see. We're, this whole section, verse 17, uh, all the way down to verse 32, it's all a prayer. It's, it's um, directed at God and it's asking God for numerous things, nine particularly that we're going to look at. Um, and, and so let's, we'll just dive in. We got a lot to cover, so we'll, we'll jump in. Um, verse 17, here I think is the, the overarching prayer, the, the main thing that, that is being asked for. It says, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Deal bountifully with your servant. Here's the thing. This is the first ask that King David brings to the Lord. He's asking God to give him all of the riches, not material riches, but all of the spiritual riches that, that God has for his people. In other words, we can say this, what David is fundamentally asking for here is grace. He's asking for all of God's kindness poured out in his life that is not deserved and it's not earned, but, that he, but he needs it in order to live and, and keep the word of the Lord. He needs the grace of God to come into his life. See, the thing is that we need, all of us need this. All of us need this prayer. We need to ask the Lord to deal bountifully with us by pouring out the riches of his grace because we're bankrupt on our own. We don't have spiritually what we need without him. And so we have to pour out our hearts to him and ask for this bountiful uh, dealing, that God would give us his grace. Now, we're going to visit this uh, concept in Ephesians 1 as we get to the end of this, as we work our way through it, because I think Ephesians 1, verse 3 through 23 are, is the clearest passage in the New Testament that shows us this, this, uh, this prayer and how it actually plays out in Jesus. But Right out of the gate here, this is the overarching ask. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. In other words, God, give me the riches of your grace that I may experience who you are, know who you are, love who you are, follow after you. And, and so I think what we're seeing as we work through the rest of this text is, is going to simply be the implications of God giving us uh, the bounty of his riches and grace. We're going to see the things that God does for us in this, in this prayer. So let's, let's look at verse 18, 18 and 19. It says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. 
So here we're seeing the, in these two verses, he asks for two different things, but they're really the same thing. He says, first, open my eyes that I may behold or be able to see clearly the wondrous things out of your law, out of your word. And then he says at the end of verse 19, don't hide from me your commandments. So by, by saying these two things, he's really asking for one thing. He's asking to be able to see clearly who God is, the wondrous things that he has done, and that, we, that he's asking God to give him sight, spiritual sight. You see, we all need this. We need the grace, the riches of grace to open our eyes to behold the wondrous things of God. Because if we didn't have him opening our eyes, guys, we would be blind. We are blind. We're born blind. We're born completely unable to see the spiritual realities that are in front of our faces. If it's not for God stepping in to do a miracle in our lives, to open up our eyes to see, we would still be hopelessly blind. And you know, I think about this when I, I think about the passage in John chapter 9, um, we, we've talked about this passage a bunch of times over all these years, but John 9 is an amazing story where Jesus heals a man who had been born blind. Well, he'd, he'd been blind his whole life, and in that society, man, you were just in real trouble if you had a disability of that, of that magnitude. And so here's this man, he's begging on the street. He's just trying to get a little bit of money uh, just to keep on surviving. And Jesus meets him and opens up his eyes through a miracle. But, but and we, you know, we see Jesus doing this a lot through, for a lot of people, right? And, but this man's experience is very different than most of the others who, who experienced healing from Christ. Uh, because what happened is after he was, was healed, the Pharisees dragged him in to interrogate him about how that happened and why that happened. And so he's being questioned over and over again by the, uh, by the religious authorities. And that story shows us a, a stark reality that it's not about physical blindness. That story's really not about physical blindness. It's about the spiritual blindness of the, the self-righteous people of, that, that were the Pharisees that they didn't think they needed Jesus to open their eyes. And in fact, that's what happens. Jesus disappears for most of that story. And then he comes back at the end and he meets the man that he had healed. And, and then Jesus begins to tell him, listen, your, you know, your physical sight really just points to a deeper truth that we all need our, that you all need your eyes opened and that I'm the one to do that. And at some point, the Pharisees overheard this conversation and said, oh, Jesus, are you saying that we're blind? And Jesus says, yeah, you finally caught on. This is what, this is what we're doing. Like the whole thing is about this, this physical miracle that points to a spiritual reality. Every one of us needs Jesus to open our eyes. And those of us who trust him by faith, we've, we've had that gift given to us. And everyone needs it. We need Jesus to do this work because without him giving us sight, we have nothing but blindness. So that's the first thing that, that flows out of God dealing bountifully with us. He opens our eyes to see the beauty that he is. Look at verse 20 through 24. Now this is going to be the longest chunk that we read at, at one time, but uh, I think it all fits together, so we're going to put it together. Verse 20 says, My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, 
accursed ones, who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Now, in those uh, four or so verses, um, four or five verses, there's only one verse that actually directly asks God to do something. But I think that the ask is connected to the things that he's been talking about before that and after that. For example, in verse 21, he says to God, you rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Right? So now there's these people in David's life who do not follow the Lord's commandments, don't love him. And, and he's just saying these, is, these people are essentially accursed. They're, they're insolent and they're going to be rebuked by God. But then th- right after that, he asks for what he asks for. And I think it's interesting. Verse 22 says, take away from me scorn and contempt for I have kept your testimonies. There's the ask. Take away from me scorn and contempt. And then in verse 23, he goes back and says, even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. So right in, so basically in between these two things, you've got David acknowledging the people who are being rebuked by the Lord for their disobedience. And then right, right after his ask, he acknowledges the princes that are sitting to plot against him, which by the way, were his own children. He was the king. And if you read about David's history and his life through, through the kings and the, the chronicles, you, you learn that David had a very tumultuous reign because his, his own children were plotting against him to try to kill him so that they could take power for themselves. And so this is the situation David is sitting in. But as he's talking through this, what he asks the Lord to do is to take away from him scorn and contempt. So so what is he asking for? Well, I think what he's asking for is this, that he's, he's surrounded on all sides by people who hate him. And he's realizing that the only way that I can actually walk in this thing, walk with God, is to know that he is the one that approves of me. That my identity is found in him and what he says about me and not in what people say about us. You know, guys, we live in a, in a broken world with a lot of people that say all kinds of untrue and maybe even some true things about us that are not gracious or kind. And, and we can feel that scorn and contempt from people a lot. We can. And, and the saddest part is that it happens so frequently within the, within the church. All of us, I think, have felt some degree of abuse by other people. And that, that's not to say, I'm not saying this to say that we shouldn't be concerned about that. We, we need to be concerned about that. And, and we need to do all that we can to address that on the local church level. But what we fundamentally need is not to get every single human person on this earth to like us. That's an impossible task. What we need is to rest in the, in the truth that because of Jesus, and because of all that he's done for us, we have nothing to prove and we have no one to impress. 
Jesus is fully satisfied with us because of what he's done for us. We don't have anything to prove. We don't have anyone to impress. And I think that when we get to the heart of what David is saying here, it is that gospel centrality in his life to say, God, you can take away from me the scorn and contempt of others because what you think about me matters far more than what they think of me. I think that's what he's saying here. And, I, and, I, and then he goes in, in verse 24 to say, your testimonies, what, what you have said, God, are my delight. They're my te- they are my counselors. In other words, it doesn't matter what everybody else is saying about me. God, your testimonies are my delight. Your testimonies are my counselors. You, what you say matters far more than what they say. Help me to know that. That's not an easy thing to do. Every one of us likes to be liked. There's no one on earth that wants to be hated by everyone around us. We, we all want to be liked by others, but this is the reality. We're never going to win every popularity contest. And if we're running our lives like we have to, we're going to be miserable forever. We've got to find our joy and satisfaction in our identity, in who God says we are through Jesus. We got to stop being people pleasers. I know that's not easy to do, but we have, we have to keep, stop trying to please everyone around us and start trying to be concerned about the one person, the only person who truly matters, what he thinks of us. And, and here's the good news. What he thinks of us is all good if we're in him because he's done for us what we could never do for ourselves. So the third thing that flows out of the the grace of God, the riches of his grace in dealing bountifully with us is that we find our identity in him and not in what others say of us. Let's keep going though. We got more to cover here. Let's, Let's step into verse 25. 25 says, My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. There's another ask, right? There's another prayer here. Just like all the others, we're seeing him directly ask God to do something for him. And what he asks here in verse 25 is, give me life according to your word. This is really clear. It's, on, it's just on, on the face of it. It makes sense, right? He's asking God to give him the, the spiritual life that he needs Because apart from Christ, apart from the work of God in his life, in our lives, we are totally dead in our sins. Ephesians chapter 2 says that, right? Ephesians 2.1 says, and you, you meaning Paul, when he writes that, he means all of us, everybody is included in this. And you were dead, he says, in your trespasses and sins. You were dead in your sins. And then you get down to verse 4, And it says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. This is one of the greatest outpourings of God's bountiful riches of grace that he gives us life when there is nothing but spiritual death and decay in us by ourselves. We get to have the life of Jesus given to us, applied to us. 
because of his great grace. Verse 26 and 27, let's keep reading. It says, when I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. So there, again, these two verses, he asks for two things, but they're related things. First, he asks for, uh, for God to teach him. And then the second thing he asks right after that in verse 27 is, make me understand. So these are related things, right? We, we need God to teach us, and we need God to help us understand. See, it's one thing to, to be able to just intellectually grasp something, and it's another thing to truly apply it and understand it and how it fits into the, to the life that we live. And so I think what he's fundamentally asking for here is for God to give him the wisdom that can only come through, through him. We need God's wisdom through Jesus because without it, we're foolish. We have, we have nothing but foolishness to offer, and yet Jesus gives us his wisdom. He helps us to, to take what he says and then understand it in such a way that we can apply it. See, that's what wisdom is. Wisdom is not just head knowledge. It's an application of what, what God says about himself. Wisdom is knowing how to apply the truths of God, not just what the truths of God are. And so we need both of these things. We need to be taught and we need to comprehend, understand. And without the grace of God being poured out on us in the riches of his grace, we'll never get there. We, we need his help to understand his word. We're going to see this come back again in Ephesians 1 too. This concept is, is a big part of what Paul says there. And we'll, we'll look at that in just a few minutes. But let's go on to the next thing. Verse 28. It says, My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. This is interesting. Because what he asks for is strength. Right? He says, Strengthen me according to your word. But notice why he's asking for strength. At the first part of this verse. He says, my soul melts away because of sorrow. So the strength that, that the psalmist is asking for, it's clearly not physical strength. That's not in the context of his ask at all. It is actually the strength to be held together when his entire life seems to be melting away. My soul melts away because of sorrow. Because of sorrow. His sadness is so profound. His sadness is so deep. His sadness is so heartbreaking that it feels like his soul is melting away. I think some of us in this room have been there. And so what is he asking for? In the midst of the brokenness that he feels from, from the sorrow he's experienced, he's asking for the strength from God that's according to his word. 
But essentially what he's asking for, I think, is the grace of God to show its sufficiency in the sorrow. This is what, very similar to what Paul prays for in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 with the thorn in the flesh and Jesus doesn't take away the thorn, but he says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you for or because my power, God says, my power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul's answer to prayer for the thorn to be removed is, no, I'm not going to take that thorn from your life, Paul. But here's what I'll give you. I'm going to give you something even better than that. I'm going to give you the sufficiency of my grace, which will be displayed in my strength, even in your weakness. You know, as, as Christians, we, I think, have sub, subliminally or subconsciously picked up on this unbiblical thing that basically is a belief that if we don't have the rosiest, comfortable life, then God must not be dealing with us very graciously. And that's just not true. There, there can be lo- points in our lives where sorrow runs so deep that it feels like our whole life is melting away but it is precisely in that sorrow, in that weakness, that God shows his strength to us. That, that Jesus comes to our side and holds us up and keeps us with him. That's the grace of God poured out in this. In the sorrow, we see his strength. We just need to come to him. We need to ask him for his help. It's what the psalmist is doing. It's what Paul does. It's what we're all called to do as well. These are not super Christians that we're reading of. These are just like us, imperfect, flawed human beings. But they deeply understood what God was like and who he was. And they can go to him in the midst of their sorrow. All right, we could, man, we could talk about that one all day. We could talk about that all day, but let's, we got to keep going. Uh, Look at verse 29 and 30. It says, Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. All right, so here we're seeing primarily in verse 29, the ask is put false ways away from me or take these false ways from me. And what he's asking for here, I think, is Fundamentally this, to state it more positively, we can say, God, lead us to truth. See, see, God has to be the one that takes us to what is true. Without him, we're going to be succumb to lies. We're going to just see the lies and we're going to believe the lies. You know, there, there's a lot, of, a lot of times that we just want to believe something so much that we're, that we're, in some ways, just duped or manipulated uh, away from what's true into believing something that's not true. So this is the example I thought of. Um, whenever you watch an advertisement, okay, so if you watch television, 
Most of you probably don't watch television anymore. You're watching YouTube on your phone. Let's just be honest, okay? So when you see a YouTube ad come up before that video, and, um, and there's some like guy in a lab coat who's promising some miracle cure for something, you know they're lying to you, right? Because there's no, there's no truth in what... The, if there was something that simple to just fix your life, you just give this guy some money and he'll send you something like a book to read or a, <laughs> or a pill to take. If that worked, like, this would, it, it's just not true, right? You've got to understand that people, they, they, they want to seek a prophet, and so they're going to say what they have to say to, to manipulate people who are truly not, not dumb people. It's not because of a lack of intelligence. It's because of a place of desperation. And, and so to, to basically go towards somebody who's clearly needing something and they're not finding the answers that they're looking for, we can, just, we can just give these lies to manipulate them into giving us, giving them money or whatever. And guys, that's just one little tiny example of the millions of ways that, that we buy into lies. And, and Jesus is, is in this world and he's in our lives to show us the truth. He's going to show us the truth. And I'm not saying he's going to show us the truth about, you know, every little nuanced thing in your life, right? There, there is going to be some mystery in your life. There's going to be things that don't always make sense or you don't have a full answer for. Yes, of course that's true. But what we have in Jesus is the fundamental truth that he and he alone can save and that he and he alone can give us an eternal hope, that he alone can be our sustaining grace, but these, all of these things that we're seeing are, are examples of the truth of Jesus and, and we need to cling to them. We need to have the Lord take away from us the false ways and graciously teach us his law. We need the truth. Jesus himself is the truth. John 14, 6 says that, right? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, Jesus says. Jesus is the embodiment of truth. And his word, which preserves his life ministry and all the things that we, that we cling to, is the truth. And we can cling to it and, and be led to it. Okay, a couple more things, a couple more verses. Let's look at them. Verse 31 says, Cling to to your testimony, I cling rather to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. Here's what he's asking. When he says, don't put me to shame. See, shame is a feeling. It's an emotion uh, that, that usually is connected to some wrongs we've done, right? The, the, the response of wrong is shame, that we, we see ourselves as man, we just didn't do what was right there, or man, I really messed that up, and we can just start to beat ourselves up over all of this stuff. And, and what's amazing is that as we see the gospel take root in our lives, we actually understand that Jesus is the one that doesn't put us to shame, but is in fact the one who takes away all that shame. How does he do that? He takes away our shame by taking that shame himself. The cross of Christ is where Jesus took upon himself all of your shame. All of it. There, there is nothing in you 
that you need to be ashamed of, ashamed of if you're in Jesus, right? Our shame can lead us to Jesus, but, but we never stay in our shame. We're never called to stay in shame. We're called to have God take away our shame, put it away from us. Uh, let us not be put to shame, he says. And this, this is Old Testament, right? And then you start getting to New Testament and you read Romans 8. And Romans 8 is the, the, the amazing passage that leads us to this point, that there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There's no shame. There's no condemnation if you're in Jesus, right? Third, lastly here, the verse 32. This is the final thing that we'll look at before we turn to the New Testament quickly. It says, I will run in the way of your commandments when, this is interesting because the, this is not if, this is not like even necessarily a prayer that God would do this. This is a confidence that God is going to do something. When you enlarge my heart. Now that, that phrase that's translated enlarge my heart comes from a Hebrew. It's kind of a Hebrew idiom. It's sort of a, an expression. But that, but that could also be translated set my heart free. So, so notice this, that these these two sections sort of bookend each other, right? The first verse in this section, verse 17, is deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. In other words, give me all the riches of your grace, God, that I might have the life you want me to have. Give me all of that grace. And then it ends in verse 32 with, when you do this, you're, like there's confidence in his life that God is going to answer these prayers. And so he says, I will run in the way of your commandments. When you enlarge my heart, when you set my heart free, when you bring my heart to you. And, and this is the beautiful outcome of the gospel at work in our lives. It sets us free. It, it frees our hearts to stop running after ourselves and what we want, but rather to run after God and what he has for us in Jesus. See, we need Jesus to extend to us this freedom, the setting of our hearts free, it's because without it, we're still enslaved to sin and foolishness. We need Jesus to bring us this freedom, which is what the Bible says he does, right? It was for freedom that Christ sets you free. Jesus says that uh, he came to give us life and life abundantly. He says the truth, uh, that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's all over the pages of the Bible. Freedom is the primary theme of the scriptures and not just freedom from a, a physical enemy, but the ultimate freedom of life in Christ with an eternity in him. So, so we're in Psalm 119, right? We're in Old Testament. This is, this is prior to Jesus coming into the world. So now let's just conclude this by, by just turning our attention to how Jesus specifically fulfills all of these things for us. I think Paul makes it very clear in Ephesians chapter 1. As I already said, we'll be, we'll be here for a few minutes. Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time unpacking all of this. I think I'm just going to read it and let it speak for itself. But as I read it, think through this, think about this through the lens of what we've just read, 
that, that we've seen all these things that God is asked to do. And so many of these things are mentioned specifically here. So let me read it. We're going to read verse 3 through 23. It's a bit of a chunk, so we'll just get through it. But listen with, with attentive ears and listen with ears to hear because this is glorious. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to you for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards those, who believe, those of us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he has put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful that you have blessed us in Christ in all of these ways that you have just laid out in Ephesians 1. God, this is an amazing text. I pray that we would rest in it, that we would know what are the riches of your grace that you've lavished on us, Lord. You didn't hold anything back from your people. 
You have lavished your riches. And I pray you would help us to rest in these things, to know that we have an unlimited source of grace from, from Jesus Christ. And I pray, God, that we would all be just overwhelmed by that today, that we would be just overcome and amazed by your goodness and grace. We pray that you would be lifted up in our time together. We pray that as we uh, spend some time singing, as we spend some time at your table, that we would be just enamored by you and your kindness. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.